Hey, New Life Church, Bronson Duke here. Thanks for listening in. The heart of our church is that you would know Jesus, that you would walk with Jesus, and you would learn how to live like he lived. We hope that this message equips you and empowers you on your journey walking with Jesus. Can y'all stand for the reading of the word? Verse coming from Colossians, third chapter, one through 10, and it reads, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to his life, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual morality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all his wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. This is the reading of the word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it instructs us and guides us. And God, we just thank you for what a gift it is. God, we thank you that you gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And God, we thank you for the gift of the church. God, that we have each other, that we get to go through this together to learn more and more about who you are and how you designed us to be. So in your name, Jesus, we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, you can have a seat. Well, welcome to church. Uh, my name is Bronson. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm glad you're here. Um, the next four weeks are going to be incredibly important weeks for the life of our church. Uh, they're going to be weighty, weighty weeks as we get into the exhortation section of the book of Colossians that we've been journeying through together. And uh, the, the question for this morning that we're going to look at and ask is how do we live the life that God has called us to live? How do we live this life? Uh, and so as we close on the study, uh, we're going to look at, over these next four weeks, God's plan for the Christian life. That's this week. Uh, next week, we're going to look at God's plan for life in the church. After that, we're going to look at God's plan for life in the home. And then we're going to close with God's plan for how we should live and interact in the world. And you know, my goal for each person within our church is that three basic things would happen for you. Number one, that you would encounter God's tangible presence. We believe that God's presence is available to us and that God's presence cha- transforms our lives. Number two, uh, we pray that you would, because of that transformation and that encounter with God, that you would desire to become like him. Uh, and that happens through uh, spiritual uh, practices and transformation into the image of Christ, so formation. And then lastly, that you would go out and live out God's call for your life in the world. Okay, so we, we've been going through this series together, and we've been asking the question, what is an orthodox view 
of Christian life, right? Orthodox view, this would be like uh, a biblical view of how God would have us live. Um, and the natural question we've come to, so we've gone through all this doctrine, all right? We're like 13 weeks in or something like that. We've gone through all this doctrine leading up to this point, and now we're at the most in question, important question of how do we do this? How do we walk in step with Christ? How do we live above sin, right? These are important questions. Here's one I think all of us feel or have felt. How do we become the people God made us to be? I wonder if anybody in here ever feels the gap between who you are and who you believe God's called you to be. Has anybody ever felt that gap, that there's this separation between where you're at right now and where God wants you to be. So this week, we're gonna ask the question, how do we grow, like practically, how do we grow into our relationship with Christ? Uh, last week, we looked at how not to live in freedom. <laughs> like last week was like, hey, this is the way you won't find freedom. This week is gonna be the way that we do find freedom. Last week, uh, Pastor Marius went through and taught, uh, closed out chapter two. I wanna encourage you, if you didn't hear that, Go back and listen to it because it's going to be a linchpin that's going to help us understand the rest of the book. Uh, but basically, he went through how there were these false teachers who were telling this new church how to be free. Uh, and these were Jewish teachers who insisted that salvation was found through keeping the law. And these were pagan teachers who were telling them that true freedom isn't found in Christ. It's actually found beyond Christ. And, and he, here was the issue. They were inviting this young church not into freedom, but into spiritual slavery. Um, last week's passage on its own would seem to say that spiritual disciplines and practices are bad, right? But, but here's the issue with eisegesis. Everyone say eisegesis. Okay, so, so our goal in, in reading the scripture is to faithfully interpret the word that God's given us, right? And I wonder if anybody ever has been in a place in life where you're like, I just need a word from God. Anybody ever read the word like that? Listen, listen, it's not the be it's better than not reading it, you know, but it's probably not the, the best way to read the scripture because what happens is, is if you don't read a verse within its context, you can come to often dangerous and destructive conclusions about faith. And so it's really important that we read the word as God laid it out. Um, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to build on last week. And the main point of last week is that we find freedom through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We do not have to go to any other source. We can find it purely in the person of Jesus. And this week, we're gonna get really practical on how we live into that. Cool? Y'all with me? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Zach's with me. Uh, Dick Lucas said this in his commentary on Colossians, and I think it is really helpful for us to bridge the gap between last week and this week. He said this, he says, it is wise to recognize the extraordinarily close connection between this new section and what has gone before. The Colossians were not to lose their freedom by submitting to the new teachers. On the contrary, they were to, they were to find and keep their freedom by submission to the rule of Christ. Okay, I'm gonna give you a thesis, sermon title, recommended reading, and we're gonna jump into it, cool? Thesis, is that fixing our eyes on the reality of heaven is how we will learn to live the lives we were created to live. I'm gonna read that one more time. Fixing our eyes on the realities of heaven is how we will learn to live the lives we were created to live. The sermon title, if you're taking notes this morning, is Living in Reality. 
And I have a recommended resource, as always, recommended reading. Uh, I've recommended this a few times before. Pick it up. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. It's informative. It will help you understand the world that we live in. It's a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. Really enjoyable. Highly recommended. 10 out of 10. Okay? Okay. Uh, who in here has toddlers? Anybody in that phase of life? You're like exhausted, you know, a little cranky. You're at your wit's end. Uh, you know, with, with your nerves. You're blessed and highly favored, though. Can I get an amen, right? Um, what's the number one show? People with toddlers, what's the number one show in your house right now? This is judgment-free, all right? Don't worry. This is not a pastor trap. Paw Patrol? <laughs> Let's go. What? Bluey, okay. What else? Winnie the Pooh, okay, old school. I don't hear that one often. That's good. What? He's saying Chase? Paw Patrol, yeah. I know Chase. I know about Chase. Uh, my, my daughter likes a show called Out of the Box. Anybody grow up on that? Like my Gen Zers, okay? Uh, out of the Box, Out of the Box. Yeah, that lives in my head. Uh, rent free. Um, her babysitter uh, introduced her to it. The other one that you, you just can't miss is, is Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, right? This is a reality of life. You can try to fight it all you want, but it is reality. And in Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, when they hit a situation they don't know what to do, what do they need? A mouse tool. That's right. <laughs> so funny, the stuff that we all know. Uh, and they go, Miska, Muska, mouse tool, right? And uh, this, you know, uh, Toodles comes out. Oh, Toodles. You know, he comes out. And uh, they're, they're, they're running into an issue, and he kind of brings them these items, right? Things they can use to solve their problem. And it's like, our hot air balloon has a hole in it. What do we do? It's like, do we need a shovel? No. Do we need a stick? No. Do we need a Band-Aid? I'm like, no. And they're like, yes. And it's like, you're going to repair a hot air balloon with a Band-Aid? This is not real, all right? Or another one's like they needed moon shoes. It's like, oh, of course, moon shoes. Logical solution here. And like with the moon shoes, it was like anti-gravity and they could walk on the walls. And Georgia asked for moon shoes for her birthday and she was devastated. Uh, we did not provide said moon shoes. Uh, but but here, here's, here's the thing. It's not reality, right? Like you're watching these shows and you're like, this is ridiculous. Uh, when cartoons operate in unreality, it's not a big deal, all right? It bothers me, it drives me crazy. Not really a big deal. Uh, they're cartoons, it's what, the, what they do. But, but here's the big question. What happens if we live in unreality? Like, what, what happens if what we're believing to be true about the world isn't, in fact, true? Like, believing a Band-Aid can repair a hot air balloon, we believe that the key to satisfaction is more and more sex, that the key to contentment is more money. The key to our healing is becoming our authentic selves, right? What if we are believing lies about what will satisfy us, heal us, and make life meaningful? When this happens, we end up saying things like, or catching on to slogans like, the heart wants what it wants. Has anybody ever heard that before? The heart wants what it wants. Anybody said it before? All right, we've been there. Do you know what the origin of that statement is? Woody Allen, in an interview with Time Magazine, uh, was being interviewed about why he had entered into a sexual relationship with his 15-year-old stepdaughter. And his response was, the heart wants what it wants. And now it's become part of our cultural imagination 
in view of right living, right? So much so that in 2014, the Selena Gomez released a song called, you guessed it, The Heart Wants What It Wants. I don't blame Selena, I blame her writers, okay? It's not Selena's fault. Eugene Peterson said this, he said, Christian consciousness begins in the painful realization that what we had assumed was the truth is in fact a lie. The painful realization that we, what we had assumed was the truth was, is in fact a lie. So what is Paul's solution to unreality? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. Uh, this text lays out four imperatives of Christian spirituality. If you're taking notes, it's not on the screens, but it lays out four imperatives of Christian spirituality. Number one, you have to seek the things above. Number two, set your mind on things above. Number three, put to death what is earthly in you. And number four, get rid of the life that you once lived. Let's dig into it. Point number one, set your sights on reality. Everybody say reality. Colossians 3 verse 1. So since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor of, at God's right hand. Think, everyone say think. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will, you will share in all his glory. Now, the first and essential truth here in this is that Christ has rescued you. He has raised you from the dead. If you go back and you look at Colossians chapter 2, it says that he buried your old life, he raised you to new life, and he marched death and shame naked through the streets. That is one of my favorite passages in the entire scripture. That is just like so hardcore. It's like the thing that had come against you, Christ disarmed its power and he marched it naked and naked in the streets for all the world to see that it does not have power over you anymore. That is a good thing, right? That's a good place to say, amen. It's amazing. That is the work of Jesus. We have to rest in that and we have to start there. Then the apostle instructs us. He says, since Christ has rescued you from the power of sin and he's raised us from death to new life, you are to set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now, this is a wild statement, all right? This is not just saying, fix your eyes on the reality that heaven is real. It's not just saying, fix your eyes on the reality that you will one day go to heaven. It's much deeper than that. What he's saying here is reality is actually found in heaven, not on earth. Just wild, okay? So I think it's gonna be helpful. Let, let's, let's do some definitions real quick. Uh, Comer in his book, Live No Lies, defines reality as things that correspond to the truth. He defines unreality as things that do not, respond, do not correspond to the truth. When we say that a friend is not living in reality, have you ever said that? I know you've never said that, right? You've never been talking to somebody and like, he's not living in reality, all right? It means that they're believing destructive lies about a situation or about the world itself. They need something to help them recalibrate to what is real. We can live in unreality. Like the lady on the American Airlines flight. Did y'all see this? Ladies on the American Airlines flight. And she's like, that guy's not real, right? And she's like, I'm getting off the plane. You can stay here and die if you want. But that is a reptilian lizard man. That is what she believed that she was sitting next to this reptilian alien. Now, listen, we're pretty sure, 
We're pretty sure that it wasn't a reptilian alien lizard man who blinked vertically. That's what she saw. Pretty sure that she was not living in reality. I don't think that person next to her was a space lizard, but possibly. Here's what the text is saying. We have been sold a pack of lies about what it means to be human. Eugene Peterson said this. He said, repentance is deciding you've been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. It's deciding that God in Christ Jesus is telling you the truth. Here's the prayer. He goes on. He says, rescue me from the lies of advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire, from the lies of entertainers who promise a cheap way to joy, from the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct me in power and morality, from the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals so that I will live a long, happy, and successful life. Rescue me from the person who tells me of life and omits Christ, who is wise in the ways of the world and ignores the movement of the Spirit. Look at this. It says, the lies are impeccably factual. They contain no errors. There are no distortions or falsified data, but they are lies all the same because they claim to tell us who we are and omit everything about our origin in God and our destiny in God. They talk about the world without telling us that God made it. They tell us about our bodies without telling us that they are the temples of the Holy Spirit. They instruct us in love without telling us about the God who loves us and gave himself for us. Here's what Paul is teaching us. We do not have to let brokenness set our lens for reality. We don't have to let brokenness set our lens for life. There's a greater reality than what we've seen. Here's what he's saying. Jesus knows the truth about life and human flourishing. And the keys can be found by fixing our eyes on that reality. He's saying, set your sight, set your vision for life on the things of heaven and learn to view your life and the world around you through this lens. First, he says, set our eyes, right? This is our vision, where we're headed, the direction for life. He's saying, when, when you look at things like your sexuality and greed and all these things, he's saying, get the reality of those things from heaven. But then look what he says. Colossians chapter two, I want you to underline this if you have a paper Bible with you or you can highlight it in your version. It says, think. Everyone say think. think. Then it says, says, set your eyes on the realities. Then it says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. He's saying, think about the things of heaven. Listen, what we think determines how we operate. The way that we think determines how we live. You cannot change your life without changing your thoughts, right? Proverbs 4.23 says, be careful how you think for your life is shaped by your thoughts. You know, God is more interested in changing the way you think about life in the world than he is in just changing your circumstance. So often we go to God and we want circumstantial change, but what actually changes circumstances is people whose minds are transformed, people whose lens on reality and truth is transformed. Here's a truism. The best leaders make the best decisions with the best information, right? You can't make good decisions with bad intel. And God gives us the best intel for making decisions for life, so we need to dwell on his ways. We need to renew our minds, renew our thinking. More on that here in a little bit. Let, let's talk about mental maps. Have you ever heard about mental maps before? We all have mental maps. 
Mental maps are the ways that we navigate life and we navigate the world. So here's kind of how it plays out in a simple way. Like for me, I have mental maps uh, for the way Little Rock is laid out. Right, so I leave my house, I turn left on Cary, I turn right on JFK, I go on down through Park Hill, I take a right on Interstate 40, then I exit onto I-30 South, right? And then I exit onto 6th Street or 9th Street, I'm not quite sure anymore, because of uh, all the construction. All right, then I take 9th Street all the way down to Maine, I take a right, and I'm at work, right? I have a mental map for how to get to work. But, but here's the problem, we have, we have mental maps for everything within our life. The problem comes is that the problem comes when your mental map is not based on truth and reality. So we have mental maps for flourishing. We have mental maps for the ways that we should live that are actually destructive. Comer says this. He says, in the same way that we have mental maps for how to get to work or school or our favorite coffee shops, we have mental maps for all of life. We have maps for our money, for our sexuality, for our relationships. Our mental maps are made up of a collection of ideas the philosopher Dallas Willard defined ideas as assumptions about reality. Isn't that a powerful statement? An idea is an assumption about reality. They're working theories, usually based on some kind of evidence or experience about how life actually works, or in American lingo, what will make us happy. He goes on to say, the wonder of the human person is our ability to hold in our minds ideas that correspond to reality and ideas that do not correspond to reality. What Christ is revealing to us is that we have ideas about the world that are untrue when it comes to flourishing. Ideas about sexuality and fulfillment. Ideas about money and what is worthy of our worship. Ideas about how to live within the world. So the question comes, to use like old biblical language, how do we mortify these desires? Like, if, if these things are not the way that God designed us to live, how do we actually rise above these things? This passage is going to give us some instruction about it, but, but here's what I want to tell you. It's an incredibly painful process, but it's actually an incredibly liberating process. We've got to set our sights on something greater. God wants to show us the true way to fulfillment, the liberation of generosity, and what's truly worthy of our worship. So point number one, We've got to set our sights on reality in Jesus and live into that reality. Point number two, we've got to put to death the life we once lived. Verse five says, put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. What's interesting is if you mind down into the Greek here, uh, that, that earthly things lurking um, it's actually one word, which just means earthly. And so basically what the translators decided here is the best way to understand this thing is put to death what is earthly within you. But I love that these things are lurking, like in every nook and cranny of how we understand the world. And Christ is looking to redeem and teach us better ways to live. It says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater. They worship money, worshiping the things of the world. Because of these things, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of the world, but now it is time to get rid of anger and rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Okay, yo, this is so intense. <laughs> like this language, it's like put to death, but it's awesome. 
right? What's it saying? It's saying put to death, like you can go to war with the things you hate. Here's what I know. If I went around this room and I sat with each and every one of you, each person in here would tell me that there are some things you think or some things that you do, some actions that you have, some thought patterns you had that you just hate. You're like, I hate that I do this. I hate that I look at that. I hate that I respond that way to things. I hate that I'm dependent on that. Here's what the apostle's inviting us into. You can go to war empowered by the very spirit of God in the victory of Christ with the things that are destroying your life, with the things that are actually bringing death to your life. Christ can invite you to go to war with those things so that your life can produce life. Those things you hate, the things that are draining you, you get to like go no holds barred, Captain Insano warfare on these things. Water boy. <laughs> yes. Sexual immorality. Those things that feel good for a moment but leave you drained. He's saying go to war against those things. Greed, that desire for more and more and more, but once you actually get more, somehow you are emptier than you were before because you got everything you thought you wanted and it didn't satisfy your soul. He's saying go to war against that way of thinking. The anger and rage and slander that is wrecking relationships, that's making you feel powerful in the moment, but in the end leaves you alone, scared, and vulnerable. He's saying go to war against these things. The coarse talk that feels funny in the moment but actually tears down. He's saying, go to war with it. You'll listen. Holiness matters to God. Our holiness is not our way to him, but it's a result of knowing him. I feel like the word holiness has kind of gotten a bad rap in church, right? Because it's when we say holiness, it's like holier than thou, right? Oh, you know, it's the God squad, it's the holier than thou, it's the whatever. But what the enemy does is the enemy takes ideas, right? And he tries to twist and give us negative lenses on the good things that God has for us. God has called us to holiness. And y'all, this isn't a one-day thing. This is a process that God invites us into. But when we actually walk into that and we, we commit like, hey, come hell or high water, I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna fight for this. It actually produces in us the life that we're looking for. Amen? God does not want anything for you that in the end is not good for you. Now, it doesn't mean that he won't walk you through some pain and suffering, right? But it means it'll be good for you in the end. It's a painful process, but it liberates. So, how do we do it? Uh, anybody that watch home renovation shows? I do because I'm married. Uh, there's a show in Indianapolis. Anybody know what it's called? What's it called? Good Bones. Okay. Uh, it's this show. I thought it was Detroit. It's in Indianapolis. But it's similar to here in Little Rock. Like, we have some houses here that, like, you do not really want to live in, right? They're, they're broken down. They're whatever. And what they do is they come in, and they take these houses that are, like, cracked ends that nobody wants to live in, and they transform these houses. And one-to-one, -one, uh, they transform the neighborhood. And so a lot of times what they do is they'll come into these houses, and actually they have foundation issues. They have all kinds of problems. And the first thing they have to do is sure up the foundation, 
Y'all, the work that Christ has done in you is he's shored up your foundation. He's given you a firm foundation to stand on, not based on your holiness, but his holiness, not based on your desire, your need for love, but his just inherent love for you. You get to stand on that. You're firm in that. Your house is not gonna fall down if you're in Christ Jesus. That's a good place to give the Lord a little hand, a little golf clap. That's good, okay. But next... How do we actually make that home habitable? What Christ invites us into is this life of renovation. Dallas Willard calls it the renovation of the heart. And God is going room to room inside of our broken down, busted lives. He's renovating one room at a time. Listen, but he doesn't do it alone. He does it in partnership with us. And we go room to room making it habitable for God we make our lives habitable for others, and it brings about life in other people. We do it with him. He's given us the security to do it. So the question is, how do we do it? We do it through our spiritual practices so that we can be formed in the image of Christ. I, I have a friend uh, who's a business guy, and he said this, and I thought this was just such a great commentary on life. He's like, the moment I step into the office, he said, everything rages against my ship to try to break my anchor loose from being rooted in my life with God. He was like, all the stresses of work and life and all this stuff is just raging. It's like a storm raging against the ship. And he said, what my spiritual disciplines are, my morning prayer, my afternoon prayer, my evening prayer, he said, what it does is it keeps that chain tight. It keeps me firm and it keeps me connected. Uh, last night, I rewatched. Uh, Doctor Strange. Anybody, y'all remember that? It's like 2016. The first one, the good one. Uh, I, I rewatched that one. In the movie, Doctor Strange asked the ancient one, he said, how do I get from where I am to where you are? So he was in the position of a student. She was in the position of master. How do I go from where I am to where you are, from knowing nothing to being a master? And her answer is great. It's the same way you learn to do anything else. Study and practice, years of it. Y'all, here's something that was missing from my spiritual life for years. I had belief and I had firm faith, but I didn't have actions that formed my heart, that formed my life to actually live into that faith. What, what I've learned is, is that as followers of Jesus, we're actually his apprentices, right? We're his disciples, we're learning from him, from the master of life. And what I found, what I wanna exhort you to, is to never give up on that. Okay, we're, we're gonna get into some really practical stuff here, but first, uh, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, that I think just perfectly outlines our experience of life. He says this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So, if we're gonna live into reality, if we're gonna put to death the earthly things within us, if we're gonna go to war with these things, how do we do it, okay? There's some structures of change. Uh, I heard a pastor talking about this, structures of change. The first structure is I will, right? It's like your type A people. It's like, I will do this. I will beat life into submission. I will overcome this, right? But anybody who's tried to beat a vice or lots of vices will find at some point 
your will is not enough, right? Because there's desires within you that are actually stronger than your will. So next, we can go to I won't. I won't look at that thing. I will not drink that thing. I won't respond that way when somebody makes me angry. But underneath this, we have these desires and we have these reactions. What psychologists would say is is the strongest mode or strongest structure for change is not I will, it's not I won't, it's I want. It's transforming what you actually desire that brings you the power to change. Once you want something greater, when you desire something else, once your desires are changed, your actions will follow a lot more easily. One writer said this, he says, whatever it is that has its hooks in you, you will never be free from it until you find something that you want more. It's not about getting rid of desire. It's about giving ourselves to bigger and better and more powerful desires. It's the cultivation of desire that brings change. So how do we cultivate desires? It's through practices. Callie said this, uh, we were talking on Friday. She said, spiritual practices are what sustain you when the emotions of wonder and awe wear off. There's a quote, let me see if I've got it. Way to go, Callie put it in another document. Wait a second, but it's too good. St. Augustine, he said this, he said, being satisfied with religious feeling or sentimentality, but not striving to know God's will. That's one of his definitions of pride. Can anybody relate to that? What are the things that sustain you when the emotions wear off, when you leave church and you go into the rest of your life? What I've found is having some practices in my life are the things that help me. Uh, This process is called spiritual formation. It's the process by which we're formed from our spirits and our inner persons to become like Jesus. Okay. Let's talk about a learning circle. Okay. I found this this week. I think this is so helpful. And this is, this is the best mode I've found from going from being convicted by God, by having a holy moment with God to actually bringing, bringing about change. And so we've got this nifty, uh, nifty circle chart up here. All right. And this is a learning circle. This is a model for listening to God's voice that John Tyson and Mike Breen developed together. And uh, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to give you an example. Um, But it starts with observation. It moves to reflection. It moves to discovery. Then it goes from these repentant acts. We're going to talk about that in a second. To actual, uh, like, believing physical acts, which is planning, challenging, uh, accountability, and action. Okay, so... (laughs) Have you ever had something where like a situation hits you and you're like, why is this bothering me so much? Like this doesn't make sense. Anybody, can you locate something in your own life where it's like something happened and it either made you so mad or it made you so insecure or whatever? Uh, okay, so a few years back, Callie and I are dating, so not more than a few years at this point, uh, and there was a Halloween party. And so we were gonna go as Harry Potter and Hermione Granger, all right? This is before Christ. <laughs> not really. I know some of y'all Baptists are going to judge me. We love the Baptists, okay? You're welcome here. Um, So we're going to this party, and Callie has, like, the tie and the scarf, and she looks exactly like her, all right? She looks amazing. And I've got on, like, black jeans and a button-up, and I look like an angsty vampire with a lightning bolt drawn like with mascara on my head, because that's pretty much what I was at that point. It's like 2011 or whatever. 
And I'm looking at her outfit. I'm like, let me use that scarf. She's like, no, it pulls my outfit together. I'm like, I look like an idiot. Like, I look like nothing. You know, if I'm not standing by you, nobody will know what I am. And y'all, it legitimately, like, it hit me in this place of, like, deep insecurity. And I'm like, I'm a grown man. Like, what is going on in me? I was so insecure to walk into this party. And I'm like, you have to give me that scarf. (laughs) And we're sitting there and she's like, I'm not giving you the scarf. And I was like, what is going on in my heart? Like, why is this bothering me so much? And so like, we start processing and talking. And what I realized, I didn't, I didn't know this was going on inside of me, but I, I remember that when I was a little kid, I, I didn't have good costumes for Halloween because my family didn't have a lot of money. And so like all the other kids would show up with these cool costumes. I was always so embarrassed at Halloween because I had like this DIY, terrible costume And as an adult man, that insecure little boy started to surface. And I had this Kairos moment, like this holy moment with God, where God was starting to reveal to me through the Holy Spirit that, hey, like this is something to pay attention to. This is something broken in your life. I was operating under this weird unreality that I'm like the sum total of how cool I am at the holiday party, right? When the truth is, is that I don't find my security in what I wear or what I look like. I find my security in what Christ has done for me, right? You know, this is one of the number one ways that the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will start to unearth. So with anything you're you're dealing with, I want to encourage you to just take a moment. We're going to take a moment of just like reflection and walk through this together. What are some things that either like you have strange responses to? Or like it, it makes you angry when somebody says it and you're like, this is not that big of a deal. Why is this bothering me so much? Or maybe some areas of insecurity or frustrations at work. It's like your boss is doing something and it's making you way more mad than it should. You know, how, how much of life have you gone through and given no thought to those things, right? How much of life have you gone to and you just reacted with rage and you didn't give it a second thought? Or you gave in to your lust and you didn't give it a second thought. Or, you know, you're just buying whatever you want. You don't give it a second thought. One of the practical ways that God works within our hearts to transform us is he actually gives us these convictions, these moments where this stuff will bother us, stuff that we did for years. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit will give us a check and he'll start pulling on our hearts with it. And so what do we do with those moments? I want to give you something practical. First, we observe. We pause. We say, what is God saying to me right now? Like through this emotion or through this conviction, what is God speaking to me? Name it. Number two, reflect. Think deeply about what the Holy Spirit is saying and try to separate this from your normal modes of operation and how you would do and say, hey, how would God have me respond to this? What's underneath what he's saying? You'll listen. Some of the most painful parts of Christian discipleship, it's not actually the gross sins. It's not actually the stuff that's just so obvious. It's the hidden motivations of the heart. When you realize I don't actually love that person, I'm just using them for what they can do for me. That's the stuff. When you start to dig into that stuff, where God's like, okay, we're getting into into some good things here. It's those hidden, deep motivations. So first, observe. Second, reflect. Third, discover. What does he want you to repent from and turn away from? The word repentance. Listen, some, some of this stuff like, is just really like, high on your heart right now, whether it's just uh, a habitual sin or something like that. But sometimes this stuff that we repent from 
is just twisted ways of thinking. Again, we talked about holiness earlier. Repentance is a good word. Repentance means I'm turning from death and I'm turning towards life. Discover. When this stuff starts happening, we're discovering the heart of God and his purposes for us in the world. Once we get clarity on what God's saying, we can turn the corner from repenting to action and belief. We can change our minds, turn to 180 degrees, and we can believe and wholeheartedly embrace God's work in our life. Okay, this is where we get, like, practical. We can plan. All right, so if God's speaking to you on that, how can you implement what he's saying to you today? When we do this, we're consciously aligning our lives with what God has spoken. So the question is, how are you going to obey? What is God asking you to do differently? And how can you obey in the days ahead? You have to have a plan for that. Okay, ways you do that. You get support. Don't be a hero. Has anybody ever had a moment with God where you're like, ooh, God's speaking to me on this. What are we having for lunch? <laughs> right? And you just move on to the next thing. And then you continue in that thing. Instead of bringing somebody in on it, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Bring someone in on whatever God's speaking to you. Y'all, I did so much of that this week, we'd be here for another hour if I started in on it. Just hidden motivations in my heart, things I had to confess to friends, to teammates, whatever. Accountability. This is a word like within the church, some people hate the word accountability. They're like, that's an oppressive word, that's fine. Partnership, whatever you want to use. Who can you invite in to hold you accountable? Now listen, you want true partners. You don't want jerks who are just gonna beat you up and make you feel bad about yourself. You want people who are gonna walk with you in it and say, hey, brother, I've been there. Sister, I know what that feels like. You want an ally. And then lastly, action. If God's speaking to you, what's the first step you need to take? Listen, we get so focused on full healing that we miss the steps, and if we don't take the steps, we will not heal. What are the steps God's asking you to do? This is where we turn conviction into action, where transformation becomes reality, and as God challenges you and forms your thoughts and emotions, desires, and behavior, you can go out and actually obey the command to go and sin no more in that way. This is where we obey Jesus' voice and we walk in the fullness of life. So remember, number one, we're setting our, our sights on reality. As we discover reality, we put to death old ways of living. And then from there, the last thing that we do is we continually put on the new nature. Everybody say new nature. Verse 10 says, put on your new nature and become renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Last thought before we go to time of prayer. Have you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? Is anybody actively asking that question? Like, what's God's will for my life? God, what do you want for my life? I wholeheartedly believe this. I believe simply that God's will for your life is that you would walk in holiness hand in hand with him. That you'd become like him. Y'all, this is what God purchased for us at the cost of the life of Jesus. And this is what he's invited us into. God's will for you is to know him to become like him, to know our creator, to become kind and wise and gracious and self-controlled people who are good for the world that we're in. Everything we do as a church 
is to help you cultivate this within your life through prayer, right? Men, when do we meet? Six, I hear you whispering, 6 a.m. Wednesdays, right? Why do we do that? It's not because I love waking up early and seeing you guys, although it's great. It's because we're cultivating in our hearts a different mode of existence that, that isn't gonna be found by sleeping in it all the time. It's not gonna be found. There's a lot of spit, sorry. <laughs> My goodness. It's not gonna be found by going through life as we have before. It's gonna be found by getting together with other people who sharpen us. Yo, some of the most transformative questions people have ever asked me or things people have said to me, I've been in a small group setting, I've said something and they've said, it's really strange that you think like that. <laughs> and I'm like, really? What a strange way to think. I've had so, so many times I've had people say that to me and I'm like, unpack that for me, why is that strange? And I've come to realize there's a greater level of reality. There's things I've been missing within my mental maps. And I get in community with other people. I get in prayer with God. And he starts to reorient my vision of life based on the reality of heaven that helps me overcome the death and the earthliness that's been in me. It's why we go to worship. What we're doing right now, this is spiritual practice, this is obedience. It's saying regardless of the chaos of life, I believe that there is one king. He's on the throne, his name is Jesus. I'm gonna worship him, give him honor and glory regardless as to what I feel. It's why we have life groups. It's why we serve the least of these. That's what Jesus did, why? Because we find in God's up, upside down economy that it's through serving others that we actually find fulfillment, amen? Sharing our faith. Second Corinthians chapter five, I think it's verse 21. It says that, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What is the righteousness of God? To reconcile a lost and hurting world to himself. When we evangelize and share our faith, we're becoming like God and helping people know their creator. This is the invitation. Put to death the life of death and live the true life of life the way you were intended to live. Put to death the life of death so that we can live a life of life. Amen? Question, have you set your eyes? What is your ultimate vision for life? Is it knowing God and walking with God? Have you made that decision, like come hell or high water, I'm gonna fix my eyes on the truth, I'm gonna go to war and battle with my flesh, and no matter how many times I fail, I'm gonna get up, not based on my own strength, but based on the power of God working within me. Next question, what do you dwell on? What consumes your thoughts? Are you thinking about how God would have you see things? Or are you trapped in other ways of thinking? And lastly, are there areas of sin where you've thrown in the towel or, you or you've taken on our culture's view of that sin. I, I was reading a study, I don't have time to get all the way into this, um, but it was a study on Gen Z and millennials and our views of sexuality. Gen Z and millennials are more offended if you don't recycle than if you're addicted to pornography. There's a moral shifting happening within our culture. And what can happen is, I'm not saying don't recycle, I'm saying pornography is destructive, right? And there's so many things, not just that one, that's an easy one, because it's so rampant in our society. But we can start to adopt our culture's view 
of human flourishing and it can choke the life of Christ out of us. So, are there areas of sin, with spending, sexuality, with worship, idolatry, where you've thrown in the towel? And if so, what spiritual practices do you need to add? Where you lack maturity, add structure and you'll grow. Where you lack maturity, add structure and you'll grow. If you're comfortable, just hold your hands out in front of you. It's just a posture of receiving. Let's invite the Holy Spirit in. Come Holy Spirit. Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review, things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, if you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at, at NLC Downtown Little Rock to follow along with the life of our church.